feels good. So, yeah, I'm just burning some twigs and sticks, making a bonfire that I really don't want to have to do any other time. So this is a good time to do it. Perfect. Yep. But, uh, but I processed a bunch of stuff today. This has been a good weekend for me, man. Just a lot of catching up, getting things done that needed to get done, mostly shooting-related, and well, some household stuff. But uh, sounds like you had the same. Oh, dude, I just uh, I just want to fly every day. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can tell. I wake up, check the METAR for the local airport, kind of see what's going on. Yeah, that's that's all I'm worried about these days. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I figured we could have a chat. I am drinking a beer. That is no, you're not. rare. No, it, you're is a, not. it is a. I will send you a photo. It is in an RCBS koozie, and it is a Lagunitas Island Beats Tropical IPA. My wife bought it. Really? Don't hold that against me, but I am trying it because. It's a bonfire. You can't not drink a beer while you're in front of a bonfire. Your wife bought beer, though? That's, this, is, this is strange. It's probably because it said tropical. It's a misnomer. You it sure it IPA. wasn't for somebody else? It's possible. <laughs> I've had that it beer before, though. It's not bad. No, it isn't bad. It's like an IPA with a twist. Yep. Hmm. Cool. So, no, it was a good weekend. I'm Got everything ready. You know, we're getting ready to go to Collis, so I have everything ready for that match. And then... Uh, K&M. K&M, yep, mm-hmm. K&M match. And now I was prepping for um, a last-minute work decision to shoot the Night Force ELR Steel Challenge. So that was not in my schedule, but it kind of came to fruition because of some necessary staffing requirements coupled with some, well, if you're going to be there... You might, might as well, as well shoot, it. shoot it. Heck yeah. yeah so, Especially so if said, you got a 300 yeah. Norma that you've owned for maybe like, I don't know, five months or so and you haven't even shot it yet. So you might as well. It's a valid reason to shoot a 300 Norma for sure. I Honestly, I considered shooting a Dacker. Um, talking with Mitch, he's like, dude, I think you'd do pretty well. I'm like, bro, it's a 1,200-yard average <laughs> match. Average 1,200 yards with ex- targets at 2,200. I'm like, do they have flashers on the targets? No, nah, not most of them. I'm like, okay, that's an easy decision. You won't even see a dasher at 1,200 yards on a target that's like a half-size elk. Yeah, well, you wouldn't so, see a miss either. So no, you wouldn't. It wouldn't so, yeah, it would not be a very fun learning experience. It would be less. I mean, it would be cool if I did well with it, but it's just such a low probability. That's not what that cartridge is designed for. So, you know, I think that... You know, the what I was hoping we could talk about, which kind of good segue from one to the other is, you know, we shoot a lot of matches um, out east, out west, and choosing the right equipment is obviously part of that. So, like, in this case, I have to switch cartridges because it's not the correct cartridge for the match. But there's other things than equipment that I think people either tend to overlook or I did. I know I can. So if I did it, I'm sure somebody's done it or continues to do it overlook aspects of western shooting versus eastern shooting square ranges versus um kind of mountain ranges and sort of semi-hybrids of the two that i don't know i just i know we haven't really talked about it at all i just figured it'd be a cool topic to go down because i think there are some traps that i got caught in early on thinking i knew what i was doing out west and vice versa that man i would have been a little further ahead had i 
sort of heeded the warnings or understood more what I was doing before I got into it. I just have a question for you. Uh, what's better, East or West? Oh. <laughs> you loaded question. While we're on so the topic of, um, of aviation, <laughs> there, there's, uh, there's this thing called uh, magnetic variation for your compass that, uh, mm-hmm. that has to do with the fact that your compass isn't necessarily pointing north, right? Depending on where you're at. And, um, and if you are, um, if you're east or west of the zero, the zero point, um, you have to add or subtract to your magnetic heading. And the way that you remember it is, uh, east is least and west is best. So, I mean, it pretty much implies right there that the west is best. I'm going to say that that's probably true. <laughs> it's more in the sense. It's pretty fun, man. I like shooting out west. Get, yeah, you get really cool views. There's lots of terrain. Um, and it's terrain that you don't get to see if you're from the east. If you're from the west, it just feels like normal day at the office. Um, but I don't know. I think uh, I think I could go either way with it, to be honest. I think there are some really cool east coast venues that while they're deceptively difficult, if that's what you're looking for, or just they're straightforward, but they offer such a good variety of how you shoot if you want to look for like PRS style competitions, they have a really well kept environment that suits itself to being very precise, very methodical, and approaching high precision with a lot less variation to the external environments. So, and I think if I had to sum up the East versus the West in a nutshell, the East Coast places an emphasis on hyper precision getting every shot dead center as often as possible with very small targets and fast motion fast times whereas when you go to the west they tend to have longer times longer part times slightly bigger sometimes slightly bigger targets to accommodate for the shiftiness and the wind and the environment but the terrain is so big that you end up with a lot more work to both set up the match but also as a shooter to find targets yeah and just and I think those are just very mechanically different ways of shooting, but ultimately they both kind of boil down to the same core strengths. Some just have some nuances that you can navigate to one to the yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, with a few exceptions, the East Coast matches are more square range type matches, or at least yeah. they may have a few sections of the range, but those sections are you know rectangular in nature, and the targets are sprinkled out, so you don't have a lot of like panning, course of fire. Like I said, with a few exceptions. And then, um, so to make up for that, like you were saying, I would say the targets generally are a little bit smaller, but I mean, I think the targets are getting smaller everywhere. So I, I don't even know that that's necessarily the case. I mean, you shot Clay's match. Those targets were pretty small. Um, I heard the targets at, uh, they um, were. I heard the targets at the Oki showdown were pretty small. Uh, so I don't think we can say that just the East coast is, as a general rule, the targets are smaller. I think that targets are smaller overall. Um, I think that East Coast matches do tend to have, well, they are almost always the uh, quicker, slow, um, shorter par times. And then there could be more like mental cerebral type games, we'll just call them, that, are, um, that make the course of fire tougher to navigate, whether it's target yeah. sequence or, um, you know, movements or some, some other things like, it's not just a, a straightforward like read the matchbook and shoot it. You can read the matchbook in the hotel room and, and the night before at a um, West Coast match, and you know you show up for the most part. You know what to expect. You don't even have to see the course of fire in person. So it's a little less stress in the regard of the course of fire, but the stress is amped up in the in the 
um, target acquisition and and building the positions in, in natural terrain and stuff like that. And you might have to have a higher bipod. That that's for me. That's my um, first thing. I assume is man. There's going to be a lot of panning and there's going to be a lot of elevation uh, change within a, a particular stage. I think is yeah. what you can definitely expect on a West Coast match. Maybe let's break this down then for um let's call it like an average prone stage and what we see you know East Coast like how to strategically what I see at East Coast matches and how I would tackle most of them what the equipment I need slash favor um, and then if I were to do the same thing and you said hey you're about to shoot a prone stage out west what would that look like um, we shot several recently so I think that's a fairly good topic because I mean if guys are getting ready to go to a match I'll just say it this way if you're gonna go from GA or Georgia down at like the MPA or what is that arena uh, where they held the AG Cup a while ago? I think now they're at is it Green Acres. Um, if you're going to one of the cool, flat cool Acres, K&M, Green Acres cool was Acres. like a show from the cool 70s, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that. 80s. I don't know. Um, <laughs> 70s, like K&M or something that's very flat. You know, I need a an like the uh, AccuTac as uh, BR4, a, a Skypod will obviously work, but something that's small, Harris AccuTac. Uh, the SkyPod, or excuse me, the GroundPod, or the PRS Height SkyPod, those all work sufficiently well and get you through virtually everything you could encounter at an East Coast square range style match. For in terms of bipod, and say rear bag, I mean, do you agree with those bipods? I mean, are those all? Yeah, those are all in the same class. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Um, I know you shoot specifically. You use a different one. You use is it the SR5 with ski feet? No. Um, so if, if it's, so this is a good question. I got to make a video on this because people call me all the, not call me, but mm-hmm. they call me, I they text it. me, they message me. Yeah. They're like, which bipod do I get? And, and they're specifically referring to Agitech. So, um, I, my favorite is the WB four with the sled feet and it's a wider base, but the, with the sled feet, it, uh, limits you to having like a flat surface. If there's any angle to the surface, it could be dirt, um, or obviously concrete or wood, but if it's not level to the earth, then under recoil, you can get it to slide left and right. And I don't like that at all. Yeah. Meaning like a car hood that slopes down yeah. one direction or the other. Yeah. If you're on the, um, roof of it, maybe, but even the roof of a, a car hood or a car itself is usually not totally flat and it's not, yeah. the tires are flat and stuff. It's not like level to the earth. If the prop is level to the earth, um, let's just t- say a concrete slab at KM, there's because there's a lot of them. Um, that's my favorite setup. Uh, my second favorite is the BR4 with the rubber feet. And then if I'm out west, I got to have more more height. You know, you're talking the SR5 or the SR5 with the leg extensions or the Skypod. Um, I carry a bunch of bipods in my bag. We all know that. Okay. I think you just made the understatement of this season. Um, but that said, I agree with, I think those are, I think that's a really good clip for people because um, we do get that question a lot. Well, I know you get that question a lot. I get asked that question and then say, I don't know, ask Chad. So that's probably why you get all those questions. You should um, also stop posting pictures of the gold knobs and then, <laughs> and then tagging me. <laughs> I may or may not. Have you did that a couple days ago. <laughs> and yeah. I have gotten more messages in a couple of days than I, uh, than yeah. I could respond to. I mean, just kuda, they've been hecklified, so I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, 
So I run the VR4 and the Skypod uh, for West Coast matches, or excuse me, East Coast matches um, for Prone. I think they do really well. The Ground Pod is one I've just started using, and I really yeah, like I it. Get one of those. Um, it actually is very solid, very easy to use, and I've been actually really liking it so far. So um, I have that going with me to K&M this upcoming weekend. But um, that said, I think that covers, you know, let's call it prone on an East Coast match. Rear bag-wise, I run a plus Wait, one. We one also more. carry a schmedium. But okay, before we get to the bags, um, Again, we're this isn't necessarily, yeah, this isn't necessarily yeah. East-West Coast thing, but what are your thoughts on bipod feet? I mean, we talked about the sleds. Ooh. I know there's a lot of people that like spikes. There's some people that like rubber feet. What are your opinions on the end of your bipod? Okay. The ends, so the legs. I've gone back and forth on this and I feel like I'm still, the jury's a little out, but they're starting to get a little less hung and they're about to come in on a verdict. Um, well, rubber hung? feet when, I don't know, they're, it's eight to, I don't even know how many people are on a jury. Ask Christine. Um, but not well hung. No. 12 Angry Men was the movie, right? 12, 12, yeah, 12 on a jury. Jury of 12. There you go. I thought it was 10, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. So I think it's, it's 10. Like 8 to 4 at the moment. Yeah, okay. Cool. Okay, if it's 12 anyway. Whatever. Um, it's, my point being, um, I like rubber feet, I think, for more circumstances than I like metal feet more often than I've... Uh, because I'll say it this way. Rubber feet will grip on smooth surfaces, um, grippy surfaces... Sand surfaces, the thing that a metal foot will, with the exception of certain times where you want to load the bipod more aggressively than maybe you should. Because for whatever reason, there's motion in the system or motion that you need to sort of absorb. That's where metal feet on loose terrain, loose dirt, or even potentially concrete, um, metal feet tend to lock up better on concrete than rubber feet, in Absolutely. my opinion. Absolutely. And yep. I think that even if you have a smooth foot, like your flat surface feet, once they are worn into a, let's call it a flat concrete pad, they actually might grip slightly better than rubber feet in the sense that they'll glide over the surface, but there's still just enough friction to kind of keep the rifle locked in while you're trying to manipulate it um, to the target. And then you get fine natural point of aim. It seems to stay where you want to put it. Rubber feet, on the other hand, um, I like them more often than I, I, do because they do work in all those scenarios but they they honestly i think they're harder to shoot than metal feet in general but the the reason i like them is simply that they do work under wet conditions they work on hoods they work they're not going to hold you back but there are times like you mentioned on car hoods metal surfaces and very wet things metal feet don't always do a good job of metal on metal smooth metal specifically and that's where i have to carry one set of rubber feet so if i had to choose and I didn't have time to switch them, I would go rubber feet because I think there's very few instances that a rubber foot tripod or bi bipod rather will underperform a metal foot to the extent that a metal foot would on a wet, slippery surface. Okay. My turn? That's the best way I could say it. Yep. Okay, my turn. Um, your turn. I, I agree with all your points. Um, my biggest concern with the, the ends of my bipod legs um and how they interface with the earth or whatever the prop is my biggest concern is storing torque or any type of off-axis um pressure on the rifle and that's why i like the sled feet because a lot of these prone stages will have panning and when you pan with sled feet they don't um, they don't try to stay where they're at they'll just kind of slide with wherever you want to go 
Um, you do have to have a really square um, position behind the rifle, and uh, that's just something you have to get used to. But um, I, I feel like the sled feet are the best scenario for me. Um, second best would be the rubber feet for the same exact reason. I feel like if I can pan with rubber, if I can pan with sled, I can pan with rubber. They're not going to store any torque in the in the bipod. Um, and maybe I'm I don't know if I'm describing this correctly for the people that are listening. So basically, what I'm saying is if your if your bipod feet let's let's imagine they're sunk down in the sand, um, and you pan. If you don't pick your rifle up out of the sand, then you have torque. That is potential energy that's stored in those bipod legs, no matter which bipod you have. And then under recoil, it's going to expose itself and want to go back to where it came from. So I want to eliminate the potential for that as much as possible. Um, so I feel like the sled feet are number one, um, but they don't always, like you were describing your spikes and rubber feet, they don't always, the scenario doesn't always allow for you to have sled feet. Um, yes. So my second choice would be rubber because when I pan, the rubber also does not store any torque. Uh, and then my third choice would be the spikes. And I carry all of these options with me at all times because the spikes do, the spikes do, um, they are useful in certain scenarios. The only time I really consider using spikes is on tires, to be quite honest. Um, and I, and I'm nervous every time I do it because if those spikes bite into that tire for the same reason I was describing before, as I'm panning, if I, um, if I have that potential energy stored, that torque stored into the system, then I could not only shift my point of impact, but also like shift and have it like jump left or right extremely like under recoil. And I'm not going to see the shot. So it's like a double whammy. Um, what I have done a few times and it worked out really good for me was to do one spike and one rubber. And then I can pan, I can tilt with the, the one spiked foot planted on the rubber tire and then the other one can slide. And, um, anytime we've had to do like a confirmation target or a back and forth type KYL, um, I've tried it a half a dozen times and I really liked it. So, um, so you can do a mixture as long as your bipods can support that. Yeah, man, I think that's a good point. And I, I agree with it. I think that's kind of what I was saying when I think they're harder to shoot. Rubber feet are harder to shoot for exactly what you described. They hold potential energy. You may not see it. You might think it's just, oh, I'm getting NPA. But if you were to let the rifle go, it will tend to want to go back to where it just came from. You know, they bounce too. They can bounce and they do, too. They are very bouncy. Yeah, I noticed that shooting to all my break-ins this last couple of weekends. Um, uh, prone, the when I switched back and forth between, call it loading the bipod versus pulling back, I noticed some bouncing that is not normal until like because the feet were dragging across the ground as it was moving, they kind of unload and wants to go somewhere else. And it was really hard to predict. So uh, the Maverick for better or worse, like has a lot of downforce. So, uh, when you're prone with the Maverick, it will force down into the bipod. And if the, the feet are kind of that perfect durometer, then they can rebound. Um, yeah. I know there's other brakes that have ports on top, like the, uh, MDT comp brake has ports on top. The, fat bastard little bastard like anything with a port on top it has downforce as well and you can kind of get some of that natural rever- reverberation from the 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 attachment point of your bipods to the prop yeah yeah i think those are all really good points i mean bipods i guess the takeaway that i'm coming out of this one is bipods are not so simple as just hey throw a bipod on have at it there's more to a bipod at the let's call it the precision level and I think meets the eye to most people. They think it just sort of rifle left rests on it. You get the same precision regardless. 
I think they are harder to shoot than some people realize when done improperly. So another one like at like not Atlas, Harris is another good example of this for potential energy. A Harris can be slightly twisted as you shoot because they're fairly flexible. Even though they're rigid, they're fairly flexible um, because they're just stamped metal. So you can twist them a little and add some torque to them. So I know the Okie boys use them religiously, uh, but I also notice when I watch them shoot, it looks like they're sort of, uh, let's say, setting the bipod back to square and taking all the load out of it each time. I can't say that for sure. I just notice how they place it, and it doesn't seem like they pan and like hard torque into the bipod while they're doing that. So just a good reference point. If you're shooting a bipod out east, it's low height bipods, six to nine inch, six to 10 inch are sufficient. You're going to get you through most of what you need and you shouldn't really have any worries. Now let's switch gears and go out West. Um, to me, that strategy changes with bipod selection fairly quickly for most of the matches that I've shot out there. Yeah, for sure. And my go-to is the Skypod single pull, uh, standard length. I think it does everything you need. But the double pull would probably be a little bit better if I had to ask. I just, I really prefer just having one section of leg to pull down, not two. So my go-to has been the single pull with metal feet when I'm out west. Yep, that makes sense. Mainly because of its height. I mean, you can get a ton of angle out of that, but there's also times where you have to manipulate it along the forend. So you can, you'll bring it back to almost the point where you place a bag so you can get enough angle up to get a 15 degree angle you know, up to a, up a mountain, for instance, or down, yeah. for what, that matter. The only time I don't like it is when you can't, like, you don't know for sure till you get down there, and then the stage may, may be designed to have such a variance of height that you can't do it with any other bipod. That really grinds my gears, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, like Without people, an alternative, yeah, yeah people, people show up to matches with the Harris or whatever, and the Harris has pretty, pretty good um, diversity for, as far as height goes. So, if I feel like if a match director tests the stage or tests the match with a Harris, like then it's it's fair game in my opinion. But some of these stages, you have a such an extreme downhill lie, like you're laying on the ground aiming downhill, but the targets are uphill. And there's not there's not a real option other than the Skypod or putting um, extensions on a Harris or, or an Accutac or, or something. So, um, yeah, that's uh, I, I feel like that's poor poor stage design in my opinion. If you're if you're forcing the competitors to have a certain piece of gear, yeah, I'm not a fan of that strategy either. Um, I do think that it's it's cool if you design that stage and if you offer gear, that's great. But that's a good I, point. If the gear I is like there to be used, I guess, and you're trying to showcase yeah, a sponsor, supports, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but it also means that the people who didn't bring that gear are inherently unfamiliar with it, which uh, means that, you know, the people who get to shoot out there have an advantage, but I think they have an advantage anyway. You know, we're right. at a disadvantage immediately to Morgan and guys who shoot out West John pinch because they do get to see high angles and Rocky mountains and black targets and black backgrounds all the time. So, you know, I'm not sure where the line really is drawn. I know it's, it's a unique situation to have to overcome. And at least they're providing the gear for shooters to at least learn what's capable. So if they do go out on a hunt out West, they're not pigeonholed into their Harris and go, Oh no, I don't have the gear I need. But one thing I did see, which I figured it would be cool to talk about this because, um, when we were at Utah, Colorado, there was a shooter there who was obviously very new. He shot some NRL hunter and he had a very lightweight rifle, relatively speaking. 
Um, it was chambered, I think, in 260 brim. I, dude, I bet it was what 12 pounds. Yeah, maybe 15. That would be my guess. <laughs> maybe. Yep. Um, it was just straight up hunting rifle. No, it was probably it was probably 12, 12 yeah. to 13. And I saw him. He had a Harris. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was a Harris or an Atlas. And I saw one of the most unique uses of gear that I have seen today. And I remember <laughs> it because I'm like, that guy, man, this is what happens when you just need to get it done. So he didn't have anywhere near enough height or the ability to attach the bipod that was there uh, to his rifle. I don't think he felt comfortable with it or he didn't actually have the attachment point. I forget which. But he takes, he had one bag and I, he borrowed another bag from a competitor, put his bag on the prop points up as much as he could and then put his bipod feet on the bag to get him six to seven inches of extra height. And then he had rear support as well. And I mean, dude, he's turned an Atlas into a 14 inch tall bipod, which was enough for him to get through the stage. And I thought that was the most ingenious way of seeing it. But you know, that same principle, I've done that off of a pack before, you know, there's a lot of smart ways that if you need more height out West and you got to get creative, you know, that's one of the really cool advantages about shooting out west. You'll test your gear in ways that you didn't think you normally would have. And you don't get to see that in the East Coast too much because it just isn't warranted more often than not. Yeah, it's not necessary. Yep. Well, that's prone stages. So um, and out west, I guess the biggest thing that I would say I learned when I went East Coast versus West Coast, when you're shooting prone stages out west, you end up shooting a lot more angles that are not necessarily straight um it's not just flat so you're shooting downhill uphill left and right or down left up left upright and all potentially from the same area so one of the biggest skills that i had to learn very quickly was how to quickly build elevation changes and watch look at a given position identify my targets and try to visualize how much angle change up and down from the least to the most across the entire stage in advance. And I think we've, we may have touched on this at one point in another episode. Um, but I don't know, I figured that maybe you want to tackle what you do to uh, kind of assess the different angles and how you, I have my own strategy, which I'll talk about after you do yours, but, um, I have a method I use that's that's worked out fairly well. You're talking about prone and, um, stages where you got to shoot high angle and then low angle and panning and all that stuff. Or that you're moving from, yeah, you've got, like, we had it at, like, Colorado. We had stages where you were shooting what seemed very level, but then by the time, or downhill slightly, by the time you got to the last target. Like, for instance, the elk we shot off of those rocks. Um, You shot very downhill. It was flat, technically, or just a little into a valley. But by the time you got to the last target, I'm guessing that was 1,000 feet in the air from our vantage point, 300 yard or so, 200 yards uphill, over 1,200 yards away, or 1,000 yards away. It was an extreme up angle, maybe 10 or so degrees when we were yeah. shooting negative five at some point prior. So a 15 degree swing doesn't seem like much until you have to shoot it. And then it seems like a lot. Yeah. I mean, when the closest targets are way down low, it, it takes a lot of a, a low bipod or a lot of bag. And then when you get to the farther targets that are the highest ones, then you, you have the exact opposite scenario. So I guess the first thing I do is... Um, if I can, I'll lay near the prop, like near the shooting location and kind of just see how it looks. You know, a lot of times your rifles can be staged off to the side. That pers- that specific stage, you weren't able to just based on how the terrain was and 
how limited it was to be able to set your stuff in that area. Even, you know, like we had a rifle set on a, on a hillside over there on the left. Um, and then, uh, the second thing I'll say is I always default to a higher bipod than a lower bipod and I'll bring an extra bag. Like I'd rather be propped up in a high prone position, um, and be able to pull stuff, the pull the bags out to get more elevation than, run out of bag or run, uh, try to get my bag so thin that my rifle is, my butt stocks touching the ground. Like that's an impossible scenario. You can't deal with that. Um, yeah, that was something I saw you do a lot that I was, I took heed of and made sure I was very cautious about my bag selection, bringing a second bag because like you mentioned the low position, you, you could not set your bipod low enough and have even a remote chance at getting to the upper target. So you had to set it fairly high turn a bag end over end and bring a second bag to make sure you had something to fill that gap. Well, if you think about it, usually the low target, the low targets are the closer targets, right? And there's only one or two of those. So if you get that out of the way with a double stack bag set up and then you ditch it, then the third, fourth, fifth target in a scenario like that, then you're back to a a prone position that's more comfortable. But if you start with a normal comfortable position and you only have one target that's close now you got to deal with a crappy trying to smash your bag down type position to get enough elevation to get to the farther targets. And you're struggling on the farthest targets with the crappiest position with the most uncomfortable rifle setup. I'd rather be yes. uncomfortable on the first shot. Like, get your bipod height up. Get it, you know, two inches higher than you think you need it. You probably need it yep. anyway and you don't even know it. And then stack two bags on and you're angling downhill. Get that first target. It's It's... It's a two to three MOA plate and it's close, you know, like th- those, yeah. the close ones are easier. So anyway, um, usually I find that if I do that, I end up perfect on the last target because all these stages have been proofed by somebody. They've shot them. So um, the, the scenario is possible with with the equipment that we all have. Um, and yeah. I like it when I lay down and I get in a comfortable position and I, I feel that like, I feel like if I'm squeezing the hell out of my bag for the, for that first position, I got to hang up on this call here. Hold on. Um, message, call you later. Um, if I, if I lay down in that first position and I'm squeezing the hell out of my rear bag, I know I did it right because they want you to use the whole bag and they want you to use the whole travel of your bipod. So if I'm, if I'm squeezing the hell out of my rear bag for the first target to get it on to the target, then I probably have enough bag to smash it all the way down and get to the last target. Yep. Does that make sense? Makes total sense yeah. to me. Okay. Um, especially given that, like you said, and I don't think this can go unstated, uh, understated or overstated, the first and closest target, you are, you should be willing to accept the most amount of wobble yes. of all the targets because the rest of them are only going to get harder. Yep. And if for only that reason, that's the best reason to be sort of on awkward if you will if any target it's the close one same for me right yep. exactly um yeah uh let's see so that covers prone i can't really panning that's kind of just it is what it is we talked about it a little bit with npa and the feet selection um i there was something that i want to mention just because i think we did say it and i think i actually mentioned it in the ab podcast that i think it's useful to say here as well something that after the fact was throwing me off while i was looking for targets out west is the fact that i'm used to seeing uh just looking around 60 to 90 foot trees right. are the average tree height here in michigan and when we went out west you know the the hills and the rolling hills you might see what look like three little mini valleys and they're small but they have these little six to eight foot shrubs. And in some cases, I'm sure they're way taller and way shorter. But 
on average, they were probably eight to 12 feet tall. So they're one sixth the size to one eighth or even a 10th the size of what we have out here. So as I'm looking for these targets, seeing short things that look like trees, my brain was thinking I'm looking at 400 yards when in fact, I'm only looking at 200 yards or I'm looking at 800 yards and really I'm looking at two, three, 400 yards. And so I was always looking in the wrong area at a glance. Now this is like split seconds, but then your brain's a little confused. You then go, that's not the right area. You keep looking, keep looking. You get your head off the gun. Oh yeah, there's the landmark. You go into your scope and you see what you think is the right size tree. Damn it, that's not it. And it just keeps, that cycle happens a lot out West. So um, I think the best thing that I should have utilized even more out West it was trying to find big features at the top of the mountain in the ridge line. Yeah. And it's really hard to do because they're so tall when you're in big mountains that you're looking 30 degrees up to find your reference point and then just drop down. But it's a lot faster than scanning a horizon of the sameness for this one target that's not painted. So, um, yeah, I think anything that takes, well, I think anything on the horizon slash skyline is easier to gravitate towards. And then you can come down as a reference point. Yeah. Um, just as like a gross reference point, but I, I mean, the only remedy to this is to shoot more, <laughs> to yeah, shoot more in these to. conditions and, and varied conditions and, and not be comfortable, uh, not be too comfortable with where you're at, you know, like just get out and shoot different stuff. Um, I, yep. I don't have a, an easy answer for it. I know that it's one of my bigger weaknesses, so I just know that when I'm there, if if I square everything else away, I can spend more time focusing on that stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's we've spent a lot of time, and that was just prone. I mean, granted, if we look at other things, let's go switch gears from prone. We talked about bipods, um, finding different targets, using rear bags. I didn't go through my how I actually find heights. So what I'll do... Uh, I actually use both of my arms and I'll, and it's, it's hard to describe via a podcast to be fair, but I will try to get as close to the line of sight where my bag and rifle will sit and hold my arm out at an angle and then stand up, look at the target, hold the, another arm, a different arm up at that angle and try to guesstimate the angle between the two, then go to my rifle with that same, or use fingers, the same thing. I'll point one finger down low and another finger, make a little wedge and try to capture that angle somehow relative to some parts of my body. I'll immediately walk to my rifle with that still like holding my arms up and look at my rifle from the same orientation and keep clicking my bipod so that I can capture the angle to the targets and the rough angle to the terrain I'm shooting just so I get close. And then I add two clicks to whatever, wherever that is, I want to add two clicks to whatever I think looks approximately perfect because that allows me to take enough height at the butt of the rifle to account for the rear bag. Okay. And if it's, if it's too much, it's easy to just reach up and just press that little button once and grab, you know, take a click off, uh, especially on like a sky pod. It's very easy to do. Just tap, wham, thing falls one or two clicks on one leg. You're half the difference now and you have plenty of adjustment. So did you see that video with pinch running the sky pod? Uh, yes. if you haven't, you should watch it because he made a good point that oh, yeah. <laughs> that I've never One really thought. Yeah, that I've never really thought before. Uh, so if you guys are listening, and you haven't seen that before, you should look at it. This applies to any bipod because most of them have enough pant or enough um, cant to be able to accommodate this. So, say you need to go higher, just reach up your uh, non-dominant hand 
which in my case would be my left hand, and uh, pull out the left leg and then go back into the rifle and level it out and shoot. Like, why do yep. you need to extend both legs? If you're just right on the edge, just extend the leg that's easiest for you to extend and then and get rid of the cant with the the um, the bipod. Yep. You yeah, can I do that with that video. And I yep. thought it was really smart because, I mean, it, it is very true, and I've done that a lot intuitively on the clock by either collapsing a leg or extending a leg, but I haven't explicitly said that's what I'm going to do, um, which now that it's you know been blazing to my brain, I'll probably think about it more often. Set the off leg little longer than it needs to be collapse the right one or the left one as it needs to so i can get to the right height yeah but i mean the point to be advantage. made there was just to you only you don't need to move both legs if you need to go up just pull the other pull the left one farther than you would if you were going to do both of them you know yep and then vice versa Agreed. if you need to go lower spread that one out or collapse that one out more than you would think you would need to do both of them and then just get rid of the cant by adjusting the, the rotation on the bipod um, I can't think of anything else major that's prone with the exception of, um, out West, because you shoot over pretty rocky terrain or varied terrain. Another consideration is being cautious of how your mag settles over things. So there were a couple stages that we shot out West where, where your bipod would go and where your rear bag would go would be, quote, same height. So you, you, you're good to go in the middle. There might have been a small upswell in the rock or the features of the terrain, that actually puts your mag really close to either hitting the ground or being physically on something. I love so, I love it when I have a position like that because if I have too much elevation, then I can just push my rifle forward and now I can go down. And if yes. I if I don't have enough, I can slide back. So if if I can if I can actually purposefully put my rifle in a position where um, there's a hump between the buttstock and the bipod, uh, I yep. like that. I could move back to ch- to aim up and move forward to aim down yep in fact, but like you said watch out for the stage. watch out for your mag but other than that yeah. it's good yeah we had to do that at one of the stages at uh, colorado remember off the rock like it was stage two as we clock we turned around to the skill stage and then we went up to stage two you had to shoot prone for five shots and then off this big rock right next to you for five shots and as i'm looking at the stage pre-shot i think i'm shooting first the yeah. first thing i noticed was the first target was a hump there. very very low the upper targets are very, very high, and you have to pan all around left and right while you're going up this big hill. And I'm like, there's not a good way to stay in the same position to get to all of these. There's just it was not possible. So I intentionally set up, but I looked where people were setting up or had been. You could see the dish in the ground where they had kicked out gravel from their knees and their butt, and they're like, yeah, you can shoot anywhere in here. And so when when you ask the RO, like, hey, what are my bounds to shoot from? Where, where does, does my muzzle have to be anywhere specific or what's my limit front and back? Nope, you can be anywhere in this box. Well, that hump where the back half of where people would be, if I drop my rear bag into that hole, I can magically get to over the mountains if I wanted to. So yeah. I set up on top of it for the low shots, the first two, three shots. And then for shots four and five, I just went back six inches, bag dropped into that hole. Bam, I can get to the top of the mountain, no problem. And I think I dropped one on a wind call or uh, off the positional shots. Yeah, so. we both shot that stage roughly the same. And mm-hmm. I, we didn't even communicate it, but that's kind of what I was thinking too is if I just keep backing up. And it was weird because, like you like you said, the people that were shooting it in front of us or you know, the majority of people you could tell, their bipods were three foot in front of where we were. 
And I'm like, hey, yes. Aro, am I okay to lay here? Because I felt like I was way back behind the firing line. He's like, yes, you can lay anywhere in this area. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay right here. It's perfect. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's a, an overlooked consideration. Use the terrain to your advantage whenever possible. You know, it's it seems so simple as just bipod, rear bag, find the target, shoot. But the terrain can help you significantly getting more comfortable, better MPA, not fighting your gun to get into a target. And it's... It'll, it definitely takes a lot of shooting to get to that point, but if you're looking for it earlier on and you go, where's the worst possible case? Like, am I worried that I'm not going to get enough height or that I might have too much height? Where's my exit point? Like you always talk about, what's your plan B? And plan B should be, if I don't have, like, what's the easy fix? Move to a place where your bag goes lower or higher. What's the harder fix? Reaching up, breaking your position and adding or subtracting some bipod height. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that those are all valid points, but they're nuanced, but really helpful for people who are going to go out West and shoot. Uh, what is it? Hornaday is coming up here pretty soon. And that's one where I think a lot of these things could come into play. Absolutely. For a lot of shooters. The, the positions or the stages uh, and the stuff you have to shoot off. They're very specific, but yeah, you can attack them in different ways. Most of them. So I yep. think that the terrain at the Hornaday match is very, very similar to the terrain at the Colorado match. They choose yep. natural terrain elements that force you to interact with the mountain, and they're so specific that if you don't if you don't have familiarity with it or don't know your gear very well or you don't know how to approach it, it can really trip you up. And you see the 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 shooters that shoot in that area very frequently; they have zero problems with it. Um, and they, you know, they don't time out, they don't, they don't miss shots. And then you see people that come into that, that, uh, environment for the first time. And they're just, they're just happy to get a five or a six out of 10, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So we talked about prone, but I, I want to take the next turn and I want to talk about, um, tripod rear. Ooh. <laughs> tripod rear. My kryptonite. I don't know yeah, if it's your kryptonite. Kidding. I it's think not. you're fine with it. I you just, yeah. I am. I just choose not to. I try to avoid it. It's like, for me, it's like going to a bar. I'll go, but I really don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your caution with tripod rear then? What is it? Um, It's mainly that I have found more than one circumstance that the terrain is uneven enough or like, for instance, I'll give my big for instance. I think this is the best example that sticks out in my brain and it always makes me a little gun shy. At k uh, is it AG Cup? K&M is not the place finale. for tripod rear, though. I, I understand that, but this is why, and it <laughs> happened elsewhere, but this is just the one that is blazoned in my brain. We shot two barrels and a... Um, cattle gate. Uh, cattle gate. It was the two barrels on the left and right, cattle gate in the middle. And all you had to do was shoot off the cattle gate, if I recall correctly. Um, but when I set... I used my tripod rear because it was a diamond. This is at last year's finale, and I remember setting my tripod down going, this is the right play, I think. I'm pretty sure. 99%. Um, and I didn't score that well on it. I think I dropped five or six on that stage. And I, that said, what I noticed was my tripod, while it's, it's immediately stable, as soon as I went to get into it and I would fire, I could feel it just settle down into the rocks even more every time I'd fire. And it would just keep going all around like the feet just kept going from point to point on those big chunky rocks and just kept moving ever so slightly i noticed it through the shot and i noticed it post shot as i was trying to build the next position so um here's what i'll say about that stage and that terrain and that scenario specifically is 
it was the wrong tool for the job and it was the right tool for the job. If, if yes. that makes any sense. It makes um, total sense. <laughs> so let's imagine for everybody listening that wasn't there, imagine you have irregular shaped crushed stone, but the stone is like, I don't know, the size, size of, of no. large golf balls. Yeah. I was just going to say ping pong balls or golf balls. So, so they're relatively yep. large stones. They're not like crushed gravel for a driveway. They're literally just, they're rinsed stones. So there's no aggregate in between them. They're just rocks in a pile. And then trying to get your 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 tripod to settle into that in the exact space and the exact orientation that you need to also be on target without forcing the rifle on target is a very difficult task. So that's why I say yep. it's the it's the wrong tool for the job. But the the um the cattle gate was not super sturdy and the targets were one MOA diamonds. So this one it, was a one and a half or a two MOA to the tips. To the tips. Even so then, so yeah, if you put a, a circle inside of that, sure. it's a one one MOA circle. Um, yeah. So it was the right tool for the job. But so what that means is you need to be intimate with natural point of building natural point of aim with a tripod on irregular terrain. That's all it. That's all it comes down to is like you need to have that level of comfort with it. And I didn't clean it either, but I think it got an eight or a nine. And I thought, okay, that was a pretty good score because if I just had a bag on that. Um, on that cattle gate, it wasn't it wasn't that stable, and it was yeah. like I said, a one MOA circle. If you get rid of the points, so um, I just feel like I feel like it was the right tool, and I'm glad I used it. I wish, and this we're going down to K and M. You'll probably be listening to this when we're actually driving to K and M this week. So um, yep. I am going to practice the tripod. If he still has that cattle gate, I'm going to practice the tripod on those rocks for sure because I want to know what it feels like, and I want to be super confident when I get it in there that that uh, I can build a position fast because 90 seconds goes by pretty damn quick when you're fiddling around with the tripod. It does. Yeah. And that was the, the thing that though that somebody said to me after the fact, um, golden bullet winner and uh, world <laughs> champion, Austin Bushman um, said it was easy after he shot that stage. Actually, he, he also dropped one, but what he said was also very important that I, I wish I am going to try it when I get back there because I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, did he use a tripod shot, or no? He did. He yeah. used a tripod. And he's like, yeah, it wasn't perfectly stable, but man, it was actually not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Now, I believe he also uses a little bit thinner tripod foot. It's like it's a three or four section, so it kind of digs down into the rocks a little better. But he is reefing downward on that front tripod leg that he's using for support. He's pulling it downward significantly. And if I remember, he even hung a bag from the center hat of the tripod head so that it had more weight to help him pull down. Um, but he said he was putting a lot of weight into the tripod to pull it down. And I'm like, you know, that makes a lot of sense because if you're going to settle, at least you can kind of bounce it, fight it down into the rocks at the point you need the support, which is really just the leg you're grabbing onto. The other two need to be touching the ground, but they can be kind of loose. The way I was using it was sort of all three legs are on top of the rocks and I was more holding and supporting the rifle but not pulling downward into the ground. And that would have taken out a lot of the uncertainty, if you will, with how it was trying to settle. It would have done it before the shot as opposed to during the shot or just post-shot where I can't see where I missed. Yeah, so, I, I don't know if I want to turn this into a whole tripod technique, but uh, there is definitely technique to it. And I 100% yeah. agree with you. I see a lot of people leaning into the side, like leaning in on an angle towards the leg with your butt, butt stock and forcing it in to get it on target. 
And then yeah, that creates, good. well, that creates pressure and locks it up and it feels really <laughs> stable, but under recoil that gets, that gets exposed. So yep. I, I, um, this is the same thing I do with my rear bag. Like I grab my rear bag, I clamp it and I pull it down to the earth because I want to simulate what it's going to, um, experience under recoil. So the same thing with you're describing with Austin, uh, with that tripod leg, I'm grabbing onto that tripod leg hard and I'm putting a lot of weight down on the tripod with my support hand and I'm just holding my rifle like up away from it a little bit. And, uh, it's not in a, in a environment where there's a lot of rocks like that. And there's a lot of uncertainty in terrain. Here's another example. Um, frozen ground at frostbite two years ago, (laughs) people had walked around in the mud and left footprints and then it froze overnight. So that was even, in my opinion, that was worse than the rocks at K&M. Because they're frozen and slick and irregular. At least the rocks, you could you could wiggle the leg and get the rocks to kind of shimmy around a little bit. But those frozen footprints, like that was the biggest mistake I ever did was try to use a tripod rear on those um, welding tanks that he had there that were kind of like, look like bombs. That was a terrible idea. Yep. <laughs> I wish I could have I that remember. one back. Yeah. I know you do. I shot it off a bag, believe it or not. It was fine. Oh, I believe you. That's how I did it. That's how I did it this year. And it was fine. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it's good. I mean, tripod rear is a skill that you need to learn. And it's not just tripod rear with using the rear leg as a support, but also using attack cable. That's also a strategy that can work very well. Again, it requires that you use it and practice with it. So this comes back to the core, you know, don't use new, new gear on, don't use new gear on the clock. Um, and once you create a strategy, stick to it. Um, you know, rule number three is C rule number one. So not using new gear on the clock, especially with something like tripod rear, or when you have that squad gear that everybody's using and you're trying to say, oh, well, they're all using it and they're just sharing it. I should use it too. I'll just caution you and say that I've found out the hard way more often than not that your rifle does not mean you're just because they're using it doesn't mean your rifle will set at the same height with the same bag uh for instance on a buses (laughs) (laughs) vengeance vengeance vortex um i there was a stage where i'm like yeah everybody's using this like wooden support thing it's a two by four the rear two by four they're just it was in the bus so you could use it and everybody's using it for like a rear brace to get in between two seats and just put a rear bag on it put a front bag out in the window and you're good to go right well I went to go shoot it and man, I had to jump like physically. I couldn't get the rifle low enough, like at the rear. So it was looking down below the targets. I could see right at the top edge of my reticle, right at the very top of the shadow, like out of view. I could see one smidgen of the rack holding it. And I'm like, it's right there. And they happened to both be about the same height left and right. So when I would see that, I just, all I did was push down and sort of jump inside the bus just with my weight to like drop my feet out from underneath me and then lock them. And it would squish the seat, load the suspension of this bus just enough for me to rock up and see the target center in my reticle and pop, smack a trigger. Well, and hopefully, I think I got like two or three impacts and that I was, was all I was able to get. I was going to say, you've told this story at least two times on here now, and hopefully oh. you learned something from it that uh, you I cannot, did. yeah, you cannot um, trick natural point of aim. Like, Nope. <laughs> No, but there's you can no cutting corners. Yeah, you can leak out one or two, but it's not going to feel good. Uh, I'll there was suffice sm- to say this the year small target much better. There was three arrays on that. I think that stage and the small target on that array was so small. Yeah, we shot it again this year. The same stage? No, it wasn't oh. out of the bus this time. It was off of. 
Uh, I think it was off of the bunker. I just remember those targets being the the smallest target in that array being so small. And when I cleaned that stage, I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah." I felt like that was my biggest clean of the whole match. It was just oh, it was it was, inc- it was incredible. I, and I don't usually I don't normally clean bosses. And when I no, do, I win. Was, <laughs> the last time I cleaned, we shot that same wreck, and it was one of the biggest. I think I cleaned it, and one other person cleaned it. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And I remember just going, "Oh my god, those targets are tiny." Um, and yeah, it was. It was just one of those tough positions, and it made it even tougher out of a bus, and made it even tougher yet when you have a gun that doesn't actually fit in the position you're trying to shoot it from. Um, point being, don't try new gear on the clock if you don't think you can, and B, bring a backup plan. Always bring a backup adapt. plan. Yeah. yeah, I didn't adapt. So um, that said, that's using tripod rear. You know, une- watch out for uneven terrain. Um, it doesn't matter where you are. Watch out for uneven terrain. But know how to use it as a tack table. Know how to deploy it on the clock. Know and oh, here's another big t- pro tip on tripod rear. When you have to, when you have the ability to pre-deploy, most tripods have one or two knuckles. Sometimes three if it's a four section. But like you know, you have one knuckle for a two section, etc. Um, if I'm coming up to say a cattle gate, I'm really cautious on where that knuckle hits in relation to the the prop position that I'm going to be in. I want to be very cautious to get that knuckle well below or well above where I think I'm going to take a position near that knuckle so that my rifle doesn't end up like right in that no man's land where the little knuckle wraps over and you have to like just teeter totter it on the edge of that knuckle or it's screwing with your ability to get it to the right place on the tripod. Yeah. It's not always, I do. It's not always possible though. So I don't even worry about it. Like, one out of every 50 times I use a tripod rear, I end up on the knuckle. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to work through this. You don't even shoot yeah. tripod rear, so how do you know. even know? Because I look at all the things that can go wrong. So I make sure I've found out enough of them that I'm like, I'll just find another one. So Here's what I'll say about tripod rear, because we're not going to leave this topic yet. Um, <laughs> you should be well-versed and confident enough to use it in just about any scenario that yeah. that is allowable. Um it may take you a couple more seconds to build the position, but the follow-up shots are way faster because you don't lose the sight picture at all. So you can just, you know, yeah. run the bolt and shoot the round. Um, it's it's like you're shooting modified prone, so you have zero wobble. Where people get into trouble is they just don't train with it. And then the second thing that gets them into trouble is they force the rifle on target by leaning into the tripod. You can't do that. So yeah, that's a bad no no. Don't yep. push in on the leg because it will come back as soon as you fire. I mean, it's just like NPA with any other aspect on a bag or on a bipod or bipod re- with a bag in the rear. So any of those scenarios, like think about it. National point of aim is king. So if you are forcing that rifle anywhere for any reason, it will expose the weakness under recoil. And if you think about it the opposite way, um, it will hide a lot of sins if you have natural point of aim. You know, you can have a crappy yes. trigger press. You can, you know, flinch. You can not follow through. Uh, people hit targets all the time by not following through. It's because the rifle wanted to be on that target. It had, it's yep. had a natural point of aim, and you built there a pretty damn good be, position. There may or may not be a pro shooter who's well known for his inability to follow through. He follows through. Um, he just yanks on it. He just but, yanks but on it, it hard. But he does have the best, some of the best follow through I've ever seen. 
He does it the same yeah, every time. He's just very slappy, but and he, he holds he it gets down. In it. Yeah, he gets well, into it. He wins. <laughs> he's won he more does. matches than I have, so I'm not going to criti- criticize. But no, he's a good. He's a great shooter. So um, that said, I guess so. We talked about tripod rear, and again, that's I would say tripod seems far more valuable to me on the West Coast than it does on the East Coast. But there are a lot of times where East Coast matches it can be utilized, utilized well, um, and and help you gain points period so that's why i said at the beginning of the season hey that's something that i want to become better with i feel much more confident in it but i still don't feel as confident in tack table height adjustments i think that's partly to do with just my bipod in general my bipod is um or my tripod rather is a two section so it's very tall even when it's fully at its lowest and it's very difficult to have props that are kneeling that you can still use successfully um with the tack table with that style by tripod right so that's the reason i'm i've been hesitant to use it but there are some times where it's useful um and it's something that i've been practicing it's just i probably need to pick up a three section just so i have one well i have one uh i got the loophole that's really nice so maybe we should bring one two section and one three section next weekend that way we can if we each have one then we can share it sounds like a good planche. Yeah, that sounds like a good planche. All right, what else? Um, I think when people think east versus west, they think wind. So we probably can't finish this episode without talking about wind. I agree. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is the big be all end all. It's not really a huge deal. I mean, it's they get not. like two That's miles an cool hour thing. out west. They get like 45 out here in the east coast. I mean, it yeah. really, we shoot the bigger winds. I don't care what they say. Um, <laughs> That's obviously a lie. Uh, you know, west coast, west winds... I don't think it's it's not as big a deal as people make it out to be. It is the great equalizer. I'm not saying to minimize the effects of wind. Wind is the thing that will cause you to miss shots that you can't account for. It's non-deterministic in that you can try to measure it. You're still not measuring it perfectly, no matter how well you try, unlike range and unlike velocity, um, unlike your zero. So it is the only component to the environment that's changing at a rate that you can't stay ahead of it. And know that you're ahead of it, so to speak, for the most part. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to understand. And it doesn't mean that you can't hedge your bet and make smart decisions in the meantime. Um, Some things I noticed, let's start with East Coast. And I think these are two big strategy differentials that we've talked about in Wind Talkers to an extent. But I think it warrants a revisit because um, of what we have between sort of what we're about to shoot versus what we have shot. Versus what we've learned since then. And what we've learned, yeah. Um, At K&M or an East Coast match, generally speaking, the wind's going to start fairly low, increase to some value, and stay there, and it'll just wibble-wobble back and forth. So let's just say it starts at two, three miles an hour that you can measure, uh, zero to two, and then it ends up at six to to eight, which would still be pretty high for even K&M because you're sheltered. You've got, again, 100-foot trees, within a hundred yards of you at virtually every single point on the range. And that makes the wind values very low, even though there, you may feel a speed here or there down range, the average is going to be much lower than that. And it'll probably stay fairly close to whatever you shot the last stage and the stage before that. So the adjustments that you make on the clock tend to be very small and they tend to be what I call persistent changes. If you have to hold from one tenth to two tenths, it's more likely you'll cons- consistently need to use two tenths over and over. 
But when you think about the size targets that we're shooting, going from one tenth to two tenths at five or 600 yards, or going up to four to six tenths at six, four to 600 yards, it's not a whole lot different. It's still just one to two tenths. As long as you're making 100% good shots. Yeah, as long as you're making perfect (laughs) shots. Out west, that that is not the case. Like you will go several tenths and it can happen very quickly, but there's not a whole lot you can do. You might have to move full target plates or full plate widths multiple times during a given stage. Um, So the reason I'm saying this is I've measured at K&M on the East Coast, my rule of thumb when you have sheltered square ranges um, is that you are going to end up shooting less than what your Kestrel measures, period. For sure. If I, I will measure six at, say, I'll measure four to six miles an hour at wherever I'm pointing the Kestrel. I will shoot that, and I, my initial call will be half of whatever it says on the Kestrel consistently. That's because I've shot enough East Coast matches to know that while I'm feeling it, it's generally more open at the shooting line than it is everywhere else downrange. So having half wind calls makes sense because the wind will be more turbulent. It'll be funneled, you know, and if you think of the way water and wind work, fluids work, if it's coming from right to left at you as a shooter, but the range is straight in front of you and there's trees to your left and the wind's coming from your right, there's nowhere for that wind to go when it hits the trees on your left. So it has to go somewhere. It's either going behind you out of something to the back or downrange. If it's traveling with the direction of your bullet, it has less influence. And all the Kestrels, all ballistic solvers, all anything that uses wind as an input to give you a wind hold is assuming that you are taking whatever number you put in and it's full value, meaning constantly that mile per hour from you to the end of your target. So if I know that the wind is funneling down terrain, I'm going to hedge my bet to say, yeah, well, it's going to be going the direction I'm shooting or towards me, um, you know, 180 from me for most of the bullets flight in a sheltered range. So hence why I hedge the value back to 50% because I can always make another correction. Yeah. There's another reason I want to, um, example I want to talk about before we go to the West. Cause I feel like you're about to head there and I do want to go there very quickly. Um, the, the layer that you're measuring is not always the layer that you're shooting and the gradient, the gradient that you that you're measuring versus the the layer that you're shooting in, can change within a foot or two feet of from the ground, and yep. and that that gradient that you're looking at, um, it might have an exponential effect over the course of maybe ten or twenty feet from the ground, but it gets it gets lower and lower the closer you get to the ground. And the example I want to give here is. Uh, we shot last, I shot last summer and you didn't shoot this match. Um, it was very cool and I'm glad I went to, I almost didn't go to it, but, uh, it was up North at a new range that we had never shot it before. And it was in some farmer's fields and he had planted some corn and it just, it just shot up out of the ground over the course of a few weeks. So it was knee high and this was in June and we were shooting modified prone stages that were two to three feet off the ground. So we're shooting a foot over top of this corn and people are standing there at the stage. First of all, there's six foot man standing there with their arm over top of their head with a Kestrel. So imagine Mm -hmm. from your knees, which is where the bullet is flying to five feet above that, which is where your hand is. And you are getting twice the wind value basically, because not only is it up into the wind, but it's also away from that buffer of the corn. The corn was acting like 
female Velcro, you know, like it was, it was damping the, the wind so much so that it, I had less than the value, less than half the value of the wind that I could measure by holding my Kestrel up. That was what I, my bullet yeah. was experiencing. So you've got to also think about the terrain and how close you are to, to the terrain, how rough the terrain is. And then, like you said, all the trees on all the sides. So the default in a square range with tall trees and a rough ground and you're close to the ground, the default is you need to round way down. Start down. Yeah. Start low. Because yep. worst yep. case, you'll see it downrange. You'll you'll miss on the AM side, so to speak. You'll see it, though. And it's if you see it on the AM side, like, no joke. Okay, there you go. Got it. Move up. And you know how much to move. It's probably going to be the full value. It won't ever be more than that. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine a scenario in a square range that you would be measuring six and shooting a 12. But that is not the case when you go out west. Um, so... I think, you know, that's the, the rule of thumb on a square root. Use half of whatever you measured. And that's a good starting point, you know, at least for your very first shot. After that, you've already got some reference points. So you can just use whatever you used, you know, 20 feet to your left, the last stage, or 30 yards to your left from the last stage. That's probably a really good starting point or a starting value to get you on target or very close to your target. And it works out well. Now, let's, I guess, juxtapose this against out west. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the elk stage that we shot at Colorado. I think this was the best example of what happened that, and also the Buffalo stage, but that was, we'll, we'll talk about that one after the elk stage. So the elk stage, you shot downhill followed by uphill, you know, increasingly more uphill and you were increasing your distance every time you went uphill more. So not only are you shooting further, i.e. the wind has more time to affect the bullet um, over the course of its lag time or its time of flight. Um, but it also, you're shooting further and further uphill, which means the bullet is not only achieving a higher max or into a level flight, but you're also shooting higher up the hill. So you're getting even higher, hundreds of feet more than you would normally at the same tight targets. And it was along the um, edge of a mountain, so there was funneling. And yes, so the wind was right to left, and we were at, let's call it the pinch point of yeah. all the wind. So, well, at our vantage point, I mean, I've tried to remember, I held up my Kestrel. I think I measured four, maybe five or six miles an hour at one point, maybe four. It was very low, but we were on the on a point surrounded by trees, surrounded by all these shrubs. That was just like sitting at the back of any square range. You're surrounded by trees and you can't really feel anything at you. However, when you look out, you're shooting across an 800 yard wide valley that you know <laughs> there was wind just the other side because every time someone pops off one of the far targets you see dust just ripping down range it's like okay this is not four miles an hour period so that means it's not going to be what you measure it will be the opposite and in this case i started at the level target with what the kestrel said and what i had used in a similar shot on the prior stage i'm like it can't be that different because we just shot the ridge top adjacent and it was this value we're pretty close that's a good starting point but as we started panning further left and going downrange, um, I was adding for every 100 yards, adding about a half mile per hour. So from we went from 600 to I think 900, I think I ended up adding half a mile per hour for the first three. And then the four and five, I added two miles per hour per target. I ended at what have been a 14 mile per hour wind at the upper far target holding two point. I think it was 2.4 or 2.8 mils. Um, whereas the near targets we use like 0. 0.6. 
at 700 yards. Yeah, that I, I had the same, a similar experience. The highest I could get my data to tell me based on what I shot on the previous stage was like 1.2 or 1.3 at the farthest target. Yeah. And so I rounded a 1.5 and then I still missed off the front <laughs> and I measured it and corrected it and I needed two mils to hit the far target. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I missed two shots on that and they were both the two targets, the f- targets four and five. And, uh, I missed them both because I didn't, I didn't add for the, the, the fact that I was up in a different wind layer, you know? Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm okay doing that. Like I'm okay missing like that because I learned something. I learned, exactly. yeah, I learned that, um, that I need to take the terrain into effect and how high the bullet, the max order of the bullet is. And you're not going to be right every time, but man, if you make a hundred percent shot and you watch it and then you measure it and then you make a correction, it's not, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I would love no. to have made those first round hits on targets four and five, but the second round hits still make me smile. So I'm not, I'm not too sad about that. No. And I think that's the learning point about this. You know, if, if you're East coast and you're used to shooting, all the winds are always feel relatively the same. And then you go out West and you shoot that far elk, so to speak. And it's like, man, I needed two mils. The wind really picked up. No, the wind, this is kind of the hard trick that I had to learn about wind. Um, and it's taken a lot of years. Just because the wind, quote, picked up, doesn't mean the, the actual wind picked up. It just means you were shooting through more of it. And that's a hard concept to wrap your head around initially. But it's because of some of the angles involved and the distances involved your bullet hits different levels of wind, even though you can't measure them there. It's not just a constant flow. Like you'd get in like specifically in the mountains, it's this gradient type flow in the flat terrain, like Kansas, Missouri, it's pretty laminar flow. There's no trees to get in the way or very few of them. So it's fairly constant all the way around. Um, whereas if you get to West mountains where you have big ridges and valleys, everything from, updrafts that hit the face of a cliff and push the wind more vertical and you tend to sail shots high despite the fact that it's cooling off it's just the wind is enough to deflect the bullet up vertically just a little bit or vice versa it's funneling down the side of a hill and causing your bullets to impact low all of those things exist out west that you can't predict if you haven't shot and it just takes a boatload of time behind the rifle in western matches to even start to pick up on some of those those uh, features and what's happening. However, going back to this, it requires that you make perfect presses every single time. Yep. Or else you you cannot believe what you see. You watch it. Yeah. And that's something that I notice a lot from newer shooters who are, you know, on the line. They're so hyper-focused on just coming up with a wind call that they forget to watch and follow through to make the best shot they can so that they can trust that the wind call they made was the wind call they executed. Yeah. And I see it a lot. Um, the more I shoot West coast matches, I see it a lot more on those mid pack to lower mid pack shooters. Um, they think that just because they're prone and they have a bipod and a bag in in the equation that they made a perfect shot. And you know, that's not always the case. Um, because you're panning, like we were talking about torque built into the system. They're taking the rear bag and they're forcing the, the reticle left and right. Um, you know, we can't know if that's what's happening, but I suspect it based on what I see. I mean, I see yeah. how hasty people are moving the bag left and right and getting on target, and they're just happy that they found it, number one. That, Like you said, they're happy that they had an initial wind call, number two. 
And then they shoot and like, oh, I missed <laughs> off right. I'm going to measure it. And they're, they're right by measuring it, but they're wrong because they sent the round with, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent shot and then they missed off the left. So, um, yeah. I just I'm just cautioning people to say like just because you have a bipod and a rear bag doesn't mean that the shot's going to go where you planned unless you've paid attention to the natural point of aim and you're following the fundamentals of marksmanship to the T. Um, you know, don't get so excited that you found the target uh, so that you can miss it as fast as you found it. You know. Yep. Um, man, outside of that, I mean. Outside of those really few small things, I mean, East Coast and West Coast matches, honestly, are really about basically the same. No, I mean, there's, there's more. Really there's way more. <laughs> there's way more. Uh, the one thing I was going to say is weather. There I mean, West Coast, you oh, don't yeah. have pavilions, and most of the East Coast matches do. So if you get into a rainy, um, it's on you. breezy, whatever, yeah, it's all you. You're not going to find a place to get out of shelter and get <laughs> shelter. So. Um, there's just sun. yeah oh, sun is brutal. brutal too so we were springtime and i remember like feeling i i forgot to bring sunscreen and i am chapped you know i mean i put it on the second day wind but even then, wind chap is a the thing too wind chap yeah, yeah all the things so, yeah, chapping everything weather, yeah everything's getting chafed um <laughs> that's different know, than think, chapping <laughs> chafing is I, different than chapping oh is it well yeah see, chafing is like this. an abrasion chapping is wow. like from wind and yeah, dry potato, now. potato. I don't know. I'd rather, similar. Be, I'd rather be chapped than chafed. Chafed. That's true. <laughs> Is that going to be the name of this episode? It better chapped not be. Versus, are you chapped or chafed? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, no, those are the big ones, man. I think those are the three kind of major, like your prone stages and how you attack the gear that you bring with you. Um, your wind strategy is obviously crucial. Um, what was the other thing we talked about? I'm trying to remember. Oh, um Tripod well, we talk about use a, use a tripod, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the only other thing that I would say is that I think there is a, there's the other element of this, which is not, it's not critical to an East Coast or a West Coast. Whichever one you shoot the most is the one you're most confident in. So therefore, there is also a psychological effect that happens traveling to the other type of terrain environment that makes it more difficult to you per, to perform at your highest. Because uncertainty and newness make it difficult for people to keep their brain engaged at the right level, not overthinking things, not underthinking things. Um, just trying not to outthink the stage or outthink the prop or, you know, West coast shooters coming to the East coast. Oh man, this wind is switchy. They're switching on a, they're constantly going back and forth two to three tenths on really small targets. I mean, realistically, the, the average is going to find the average as quickly as you can and just hang with it. And you'll start to notice that three shots hit on the left, you should bump your average a little. Out west, you can't do that. So we have an advantage, disadvantage, and we have to chase the wind more often than try to find the wind and stay ahead of it. So knowing that you're going out west doesn't mean I, I am going to score poorly. Don't be afraid of it vice versa you're coming to the east coast to shoot oh there's no wind i'll just hammer down and i'll just smack targets it's not a gimme i mean you're going to measure something and hold too much and then hold less and and go back and forth so mirage is typically really brutal on the east coast oh, yeah, we, we didn't even talk more... about that but i mean i guess we no. don't really need to elaborate it's worse on the east coast because you're closer to the ground <laughs> you're closer to the ground there's a lot more water there's more humidity tends to have more mirage the well, the temperature differentials aren't high, um, I, you tend to see mirage more often when you have, you hit the dew point overnight. So things get wet in the morning 
then they dry out. And as they're drying out, the mirage is ripping through the ground as that moisture is evaporating. And it seems to make mirage get really bad. Um, but that said, at some point, if the wind's up enough, mirage on a calm day is far worse than mirage on a fairly windy day. Right. I'll take mirage on a windy day, like six, anything above five miles an hour, all day and twice on Sunday. But you take zero to four miles an hour with mirage, oh, you can just, I'll go shoot another match. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Yep. Uh, well, man, yep. I think this is a fairly good episode. I mean, I'm excited. Well, you say that every time, so it must be. I know. But it's it is fun, and I mean K and M is literally right around the corner. Um, I had an all right finish there last year. Yeah, it was pretty uh, you good. Had a pretty good finish there last year, if I remember. Yeah, um, and the year before. And the year before, and there was one in between there where you did pretty well. Yeah. So this is this is one of my fun places. I really enjoy going here with you, and you get to hang out and see people that we don't get to see super frequently. So yeah. Plus, plus we get to talk to Shannon. And see if we can't take us up on our bet. Hopefully he starts shooting some matches here soon. Yeah, why haven't we seen him out yet? I don't know. But we're about to because we're going to hold him to it. All right. Well, all righty. Well, man. uh, I'll see you in a few days. A couple days. Yeah, sounds good, man. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. See you.